Hello and welcome to From Fear to Fire. I'm Heather Hansen O'Neill. I'm your host. Fear to Fire, secrets to overcome fear, embrace your gifts, and achieve success. Um, this is a place where real people share real challenges, where you can find common bond and uncommon wisdom through their journeys to help you move from fear to fire. I can't even tell you how excited I am about our guest today. This is a gentleman who has greatly impacted my life. His name is Will Lewis. We just recently celebrated his 90th birthday and he has an amazing amount of experience. So I can't possibly read you an entire resume of all he's done. So I'm just going to allude to a few things and then you'll learn most of it in our conversation today. Once again, um, my guest is Will Lewis and he has done so much. He worked on the Polaris submarine weapon system in the military. He was involved in the war on poverty through the government and opened a school for 900 underserved women in the 60s. He worked as a management and communication consultant. He worked with GE. He worked with the FBI to teach them some cool stuff about Mindspace, which we're going to hear about. I could go on and on about all he's done, but I really wanted to point out one thing. Because when we were speaking about his resume, he said, what I really do is create order out of chaos. And then he said, or at times, out of nothing. So I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation today with Will Lewis. Welcome, Will. Thank, Thank you. you for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited about this. So um, how about, do you want to share anything else about your background before we get into some questions? That's hard. I know. I know. Like, how do I sum up ninety years in a in a minute and a half, right? <laughs> uh, let's see. How do we do this? Well, I guess the first thing that happened to me was that I didn't have any money and didn't know how I was going to afford education, so I joined the Navy. Mm-hmm. And I was in boot camp, and in boot camp they give you tests. And at the end of the twelve weeks, I sat down with the counselor, and he said, uh, "I like your grades. What would you like to be? What would you like to do?" And I said, what's available? He said, you want to go to the Naval Academy? And I said, no, I just finished boot camp and I don't want any more of that. (laughs) He said, well, what about college? Would you like to go to college? And I said, sure. He said, well, there is a program called ROTC. It used to be called B-12s. There's a program called ROTC. And he said, if you pass these tests, the Navy will pay your way through college and you serve two years as an officer. So that's how it all began. I go from a kid who didn't know what he was going to do into the Navy who steered me right into four years of college, which I've been blessed. Fabulous. That's amazing. Now, you've done a lot with the Navy, though. We were talking about some different stories. Um, do you have, what's your favorite story, that uh, a lesson that you learned while in, in the Navy? <laughs> Uh-oh, the one you're thinking of right now, I don't know. Can we talk about that one? You're grinning up a storm. <laughs> Can you turn this off? No, 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 no. Come on. <laughs> well, the Navy, the it's... Military is, to some people, kind of a forbidding thing, but to me it was beautifully uh, done. My Navy, I had two years on a ship, and we were assigned to a goodwill tour in Europe. We were there after the war when most ports were still destroyed. And so we moved from port to port for five months. 
And after my two years on the ship, I was asked to teach naval science at the University of Colorado. So I went to Boulder and my wife and I lived there for two years. So my experience in the Navy has been, I went to a high school thing in Reading one day and they asked, what wars did you serve in? And I felt embarrassed because mine was not war at all. It's been showing the flag as a diplomat and also teaching in school. Well, they used your many gifts fully. And you know, because the, uh the name of the show is From Fear to Fire, and I remember a story that you were talking about, um, about you having taken on some project, and then you were called into a higher officer's office, and um, were you a little bit nervous about, you weren't sure if you were going to be yelled at, or if you were going to be told something good? Can you tell that story? Well, this was the Polaris Serving Weapon System, and my job was to help create the support system out in the world so that when the submarines come off patrol, they would be serviced properly. But we had no idea of what the ship would look like when it came in off three months duty, so we had to begin to project this. And they had things called maintainability, reliability, and all these technical sounding terms, but we have to turn that into a picture. You have to turn it into a picture so people see what's coming. And so back then, the computer output was a printer. There was no screen, and so we, developed a way to take all of these assumptions and put them in a mathematical formula and then in turn we produce, produce a picture of supply of missiles, demand for missiles, parts and things like that. So that the picture we produced was an SSSSSDDDDD so an idiot could see when supply and demand were off. So anyway, a Navy captain came by Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He said, does the Admiral know what you're doing? And I said, no, and I was hoping he didn't because I had spent a half a million dollars to get to where I was. <laughs> And so I was invited to go to Washington and present this to the Admiral and his staff. And I presented it and I started off my presentation with a slide that said, let there be light, because I was trying to show to enlighten what the, the world looked like out there that we were trying to create. And he said, would you do that for the whole fleet? And mm. this was a, kind of a shock for me because uh, this was now serious. It wasn't just fire control and guidance which GE had, but for the whole fleet. So anyway, I walked down the hall with him. We sat in his office and he lit a cigarette and he did a long drag on the cigarette and he says, I like what you're doing. And I thought, oh, oh God. Thank you. <laughs> then you can breathe again, <laughs> Then I right? can breathe again. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that kind of experience has been kind of the hallmark of what I've been doing. When I was 50 years old, I had to move from the corporate world on my own and that was kind of scary, but uh, there's a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? Mm -hmm. And I bought the book and it said three simple things. One is decide what you want to do with your life. Number two, decide where you want to do it. And all you need is one person to make your dream come true. Well, this was news to me because deciding where you live, my dad was a Methodist preacher. We were assigned every September. They would read the assignments for the ministers and they would move them around the state. So this was new. You can decide where you want to live and then in the Navy, of course, you can be transferred. So this was a shock. The idea that a person should decide where they want to live. Number two, decide what you want to do. You, you, you have to make a decision, which is typically every 10 years you have to decide what you're going to do. It never is one thing. <laughs> yeah. But then you must find the one person. Instead of saying in order to find a job, you have to find the right company. No, you have to find the right person. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, this worked so well for me that I wrote to the author of What Color Is Your Parachute? And he said, please come to see me next time you're in San Francisco. So I went and had dinner with him, which was kind of fun because he was a congregational minister who basically was fired. 
So he had to get a job. So he put on a resume, he was a Presbyterian minister. Well, for most people, this means you chuck the resume because you don't see the value of a Presbyterian minister. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he, he realized that the resume doesn't work, that there's got to be another way to find a job. So he wrote this book, What Colors Your Parish, which is simply about finding other work. It's been a bestseller for 20 years. By the way, he died about a year ago, but it's been a bestseller for about 20 years. But the whole idea is that taking charge of your life, in this case saying, look, what do I want to do? Where do I want to live? And with whom shall I do this? Is kind of critical. He said, by the way, if you want to kill a moose, you go where the mooses are. <laughs> and if you need to hook up with somebody that's doing what you want to do, you need to find who they are. And so my first big contract as an independent contractor was AT&T because I said, I want to be involved with management communication. Who's in the business of communication? The answer is the Bell system. Mm -hmm. So I had the nerve to go there and say, here's how I can help you when you build your new headquarters. And they, are, they were so huge that they were divided into talent and there was nobody in charge of the new headquarters in terms of communication. Mm -hmm. So I was given a contract to use my own imagination to help design the communication system for AT&T. And the funny thing about it was when I spoke somewhere on my announcement, it would say he's designing a communication system for the Bell System headquarters, and people would think I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> and every time I would speak, I could see people in the audience, the eyes would light up, and they're staring at me. And when I would finish speaking, at the end of the meeting, they'd be standing at the lectern, uh -huh. wondering if they could stay in touch. So. This happened often enough that I decided I would call them Lights of the Roundtable and form this organization, which later got called Camelot. But anyway, that's, that's enough for now. Oh, I love it. I love it. You know, I, I did want to ask you something about this, this war on poverty because I loved <laughs> um, that they gave you, it, it seems like there's a theme here of creation of you creating things out of nothing and that's I guess how we started mm -hmm. where they told you the only prerequisite was to you know don't build a traditional school and then you came up with your philosophy of how it should be done could you share that with us well let me tell you first off I had to hire a director of education and I knew because the students would be girls that it should be a woman so now I'm saying I must find the woman who can be in charge of a school for 900 kids who will simply start from scratch and not build a traditional school. I was watching public television one evening in Falls Church, Virginia, and on the screen was a, a very attractive black woman named Dr. Barbara Mason who was principal of the elementary school in New Rochelle, New York. And I listened to her and she was explaining how she approaches the field of education, which is basically like Montessori, where you say the kids are kind of in charge of their day and you try to help them work together and so on. I said, that's her. Now all I've got to do is go to New York and talk to this lady and ask her to go with me to Iowa <laughs> to build a non-traditional school. Because black then, this is true, that the black lady could make a reservation on the phone and when she went there, they'd say, I'm sorry, Dr. Mason, but we're full. This, they had signs back then that says, we reserve the right to reserve refuse service to anyone. Mm. This was very common. So this lady had to find a way to get herself to Iowa, either by staying with friends or driving straight through or something like that. But anyway, she did it anyway. And she came to Iowa and this was a big step forward in trying to build a school. I was trying to look for a theme. I called six people together from schools in vocational school in Las Vegas, Nevada, a school from MIT, 
and people in between and asked them to paint the white line down the road for me to build the school because I needed some kind of guidance to build an untraditional school. I needed some kind of a theme. And it's kind of funny because after two days of discussion, one guy went to the blackboard. He was principal of J.F. Kennedy School in Silver Spring, Maryland. He said, well, this may not help, but it's all I've got. He wrote Tolerance for Ambiguity. I love that. And I thought, oh boy, is that all there is? But, <laughs> but anyway, you learn after a while that the word is not direct, it's ambiguous. You know, you don't get clear answers. So the idea of choosing from alternatives is kind of a talent. But in order to get the school started properly, I looked for a model and I realized it was the emergency room of a hospital where the first thing they do is to really examine you very carefully to see if your leg is broken, if you're pregnant, if you have bad this. In other words, to analyze the human being so they totally understand where you are before you start the process. Too often it's, well, you're six years old, therefore this is what you need. Or you're 10 years old, this is what you need. But this, I said, we're going to have this school so that whoever the person arrives, we're going to know them so well that we start off their first day with something that truly is important for them. That knowing the person, I think, is so important. And I, and I think that um, that right there is the crux of what made it work for you and for them. And you talked about how you also spent a lot of time working with the Montessori schools, which is how they function as well, looking at having the child help guide the learning process. And that can be incredibly powerful when it translates into the work environment as well. If more companies were to look at their employees as the individual and honor their ideas and their concepts, um, I, I think that that can be just a really effective way of functioning in the world, looking at the whole person. One of the experiences I had was that I was asked to be the head of GE's internal advertising agency. So I had a meeting with about 200 of the employees it's connected in New York one day and I said, look, if I look at an advertisement on the scale of pole vaulting, 19 feet is the limit. So can you tell me when I look at an ad, whether it's 10 feet or 12 feet or 19 feet? I asked the top guys in my organization. And they looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, no, I'm serious. As a head of the organization, I'd like to look at an ad and say that's 10 feet. So if you will tell me how to do that. So I gave them two months, three guys, the best writer we had, the best visualizer we had, and the best generalist that we had to send them away for two months. They came back after a month. They said, you're killing us. <laughs> We've hung ads all over the room. We're staring at them. We can't do what you I said, well, you got another month. You know, don't worry about it. But what they came back with was classic. They said, you're really asking about communication. What is good communication? Good communication is as simple as A, B, C. You always start with C. Who's the receiver? Mm. What do you know about the receiver? Can you, what wakes them up at night? <clears throat> well, the company that had that down coal was Wonder Bread because they tell the mother, Wonder Bread builds strong bodies 12 ways. In other words, it's obvious that they analyze the receiver and say, I know why you're buying bread. It's for your kid's health. It may be true or may not be true, but that's kind of beside the point. <clears throat> but anyway, the second part of the communication thing they told me was after you truly understand the receiver, then you have to come up with your own strategy. What are you going to do for them? What is your proposition? And the third one, then you dramatize the proposition, which is where advertising comes in. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it was kind of a classic answer to a simple question, you know, tell me what's 12 feet in advertising. Mm -hmm. And anyway, that's enough. Yeah, no, I, I love that because they st you kind of have to always start backwards, right? Always start with the person. <coughs> who is your receiver? You know, That's why I ask you who's going to look at this video. Right, right. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, the 
the experience in going in and helping the FBI? Okay. This, uh, I met a man from the FBI and we got to be good friends over a weekend. We were at a conference and he, he, got, he knew me well enough to simply tell the FBI that they should ask me to do a seminar and that was it. Will Lewis is going to do a seminar. So I walked into this conference room in Maryland on a Saturday morning and they said, here we are. It was the head of FBI and his 19 direct reports. Here we are. Do your thing. <laughs> That's it. And that was it. See, we're back to the, uh, the theme. You're back to your theme. <laughs> well, I had worked quite a while on a simple process, and that was the space we work in isn't so much physical as it is mental. It's the space the mind works in rather than the space the body works in. We can talk about temperature and humidity and light and all that, but the question is, the, the mind works in a certain space, and I decided to find out if we could evaluate mind space. So this was my topic when I met with the FBI. What is the quality of mind space at the top level in the FBI? I realized first off that access to information is the key part of the mind working well. What is the access to whatever you need? And very soon the computer becomes an accessory, and the phone is an accessory. There's a, a question, the access question. Another one was, are people free to connect with whoever they need to connect with? Or is there a big routine about you can't call that person because you can't call the supplier because purchasing has to be involved. You can't, you know, there's a limit on how many connections you can make as an individual organization. Mm -hmm. But that's what, it, that's what matters, whether you get answers to questions or not. Are you free to connect with people? And the third one had to do with the quality of emotion, which I was kind of cautious about because I thought this is kind of upsetting because I'm asking about, but is it important? The answer is hell yes. yes. It's really important. Yeah. It's, it can be destructive, it can be supportive, it can be creative, it can be diminutive, diminutive, but emotion is a certain quality which the manager has to be keenly aware of. And <clears throat> the next question is, is there a shared vision or are people operating on their own? In other words, are we singing out of the same songbook or are people just doing it on their own? And when I did this, I realized that it now spells case, C-A-S-E, and I thought that's where a lot of people would stop because they now have a case study. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's wrong with most case studies, it doesn't take into account the individuals involved because that makes all the difference in the world. When you have a case study that's theoretical, that's one thing, but you don't know the characters of the people, it's kind of a, kind of a limited exercise. So I thought, what is the missing letter in C-A-S-E? And the answer is S-P-A-C-E, it's space, it's the mind space. Mm. The P is the personality, the person. So the question is, are you hiring the whole person? Are you hiring a certain aspect of their ability, like mathematical ability or social ability or political ability or whatever? In other words, are you saying this person comes to work every day, do I take advantage of their talent or I do expect only a limited response from them? Anyways, a key question. So when I went to the FBI, I said, okay, here are three pieces of paper. One is for support staff, which is 14,000 people. One is for agents, which is 8,000 people. One is for management, which is 600 people. Each was a profile of a human face with five circles around it. And I said, when I ask you a question, I want you to color green, yellow, red. Is it good, bad, or menza, menza? Is it in the middle? Mm -hmm. So I asked the questions, and each time I asked the question, they had to circle, they had to color three circles. I, I think I gave them stickers, not color, but green, yellow, red stickers. So after they got all through, I said, hold them up, let me see them, and oh well. They, nobody complained, they just held up their sheets, and in the support staff area, 
every single dot was red. Mm. And I had seen things like Waco where people burned up buildings with people in it and so on, some pretty major mistakes the FBI. So I wasn't kind of surprised, but to see every single dot red with the whole staff that was sitting there was really quite surprising. Well, anyway, I'll just add one thing to this. The head of the FBI went to the CIA and I got another call. And he asked me to come and do it with the crown princes. These are the people who are becoming officers in the CIA, 8, 000, uh, 18 people. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about this one was that my assistant and I went to lunch after the first day and I said, who do you remember in the crowd? She said, nobody. And I said, do you think they recruit on this basis that maybe they hire people that simply blend in the background? Because I saw 18 cases out there where they were quite attractive people. Mm -hmm. But you know, you can say, well, do you remember the redheaded one or something like that? They, they were just all blending. It was kind of funny. Mm, yeah, I wonder. That's, that must be part of their hiring Well, process. it has to. It's yeah. not an accident. They all looked kind of no, you know, attractive, but... But no differentiating, not, not, like, oh, this person no, stands they did, out. No, they did not stand out. They did not stand yeah. out. Yeah, wow, that's neat. I love that, the space concept, the mind space. It's so, so key. You know, I there's so many things that that we could talk about and so many different ways that we can go with this. I, I want to make sure to get back to um, a story that you and I were discussing about uh, senses. But before I go there... I'm just going to ask you, has there ever been a time since we're talking about um, moving from fear to fire where you were really fearful and, and, but you were able to break through it? I mean, there's so many things that you did. I can imagine that that probably did come up from time to time. What's the, the one that stands out for you? That's difficult. Yeah. That's difficult because... Time is such a factor in fear. You know, if you see, if you have time to think about something, the fear factor goes down. But if you, you know, typically, so my professional life, I was dealing with. Uh, I I have I had to think about that where fear was my driving factor. I think that in hearing your stories. There's not a lot of fear because you're you're coming from this openness. The way that you function in the world is an openness to it and a, a let's figure it out. Let's create it if it doesn't currently exist, which I think that just because of that, that way of functioning in the world, probably the opportunity for things to come up that are fearful is less because you're open to whatever it may be, that ambiguity, what is it, tolerance for ambiguity? Tolerance for ambiguity. Yeah, because, but it, I'm, I'm sure still in life there are those moments. So you can come back to that for sure if there's that moment where you were afraid of losing something or afraid of, of um, you know, something, something that you worked through. But we can come back to it if you like. Well, I think, of, you know, when I built the Job Corps Center in Iowa, 900 disadvantaged young women, 70% non-white, it causes a kind of a ripple in the community, you know. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking to a group one evening and they said, Mr. Lewis, uh, your son has been taken to the hospital. Mm. He interrupted my speech by saying that. So I went to the phone and I said, uh, call my home. And my daughter answered the phone. I said, where's your brother? She said, he's right here. I said, thank you. And I went back and I spoke again. And Albert, somebody had done this. They're trying to scare scare me. Yeah. But that was a, kind of an instantaneous thing. This is not fear of... I've never been... So, a, so someone never, made that up? They did this. To, 
because of the racial thing. You know, they wow. obviously bringing 900 disadvantaged people into a town mm-hmm. is not nothing. And to some people, this would be frightening. This yeah. would maybe not frightening, but just against their grain. We don't want yeah. this. We don't want this to happen in our community. But mm-hmm. that did happen. Yeah. Change is frightening for mm-hmm. people, and that was a massive change. And I, and I think that a lot of what you've done throughout your career is bringing change to organizations or communities, um, and that can create fear in the people around you. But yeah, yeah that's neat. Now, um, I'd love for you to share your viewpoints on there being more when it comes to senses and your experience when you were eight years old. <laughs> well, I was about eight years old and my older brother decided to go on a picnic. We took a, a lunch out to the country. And on the way out, there were two railroads that crossed each other, one above the other, and we were on the high track. And we decided to go home, we would go down the lower railroad track, which means we got to started down this big, long concrete ramp because the track below had telegraph wires alongside it and we were walking along and the telegraph wires were fairly under this big ramp. And being eight years old, I walked on the edge of the ramp where the gravel was loose and I'm spinning suddenly, just spinning in the air. And I remember seeing a lot of my life, my past life, which people say you always do this, you can see a movie of your when you're in mm-hmm. trouble. Of course, it was a short movie because I was only eight years old. <laughs> But the next thing I know, I'm sitting on one telegraph wire between the poles, bouncing up and down like a bird. And my brother ran ahead down under the track below, and he looked up at me. He says, jump. And I said, no, I'm not going to jump. I said, I can see a farmer across the field with a hay rack. Go get him and have him come get me down. So he said, okay. So I sat there, and I waited on this, sat on this wire. And the farmer pulled underneath me with his hay rack, and he said, how the hell did you get up there? And I said, I didn't want to tell him, no, I got down to this wire. You I didn't. fell down to it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't climb up here. I fell, but I didn't. I just said, I, I got here anyway. He quietly let me down laughing. And <clears throat> I was curious about how I could do that. So the next day I got a step ladder and went out and I climbed up and tried to sit on our clothesline and I couldn't do it. It hurt to have one wire under your thigh like that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't sit upright and it was too painful. So even the fact that I sat there for a good 20 minutes, and facts set it upright. So pretty soon you begin to wonder what's going on. In other words, is this dumb luck or whatever? So I've been paying a lot of attention to why are some people lucky and some people not lucky and so on. And do I dare get into this fact of God? Sure. You whatever you wherever you want to go with it, Will. I, <laughs> I went to our minister and I told him another story about when I had some spot on my pants and went in the motel and cleaning fluid was on the balcony. And I said to the minister, can you explain these things? Because they make no sense. They make no sense to the five senses. He said, it's God. And I thought, oh, well, you know, uh, God doesn't worry about cleaning fluid. (laughs) But the older I get, the more I realize that there is a system out there. No, not a system, but a a condition Mm. that we need to pay attention to. We can either sit and say nothing ever happens to me, but there could be a reason because wanting to know what are you can now you're back finding your fire. Mm-hmm. Knowing what you want, being prepared to do it, having an idea how to get there, all of this is very significant because, well, the other quote that I heard recently, which I think you wanted me to mention, is somebody 300 years ago said, the winds of God's grace are always blowing, but you must raise your sail. Mm-hmm. So finding your fire is probably raising your sail and saying, okay, I'm ready. But that's not for a novice. 
because if you don't know how to sail, raising your sail could be disastrous. You could blow you right up on the beach. And this whole idea of deciding that you're kind of in charge of your own life and that you need to know where you're going, you need to have a sense of how to get there. All of this is important before anything else happens to you. You have to be prepared. <laughs> wow, this is blowing my mind. Um... And even though I, I know you and I knew that um, beautiful things would come from a conversation with you, how it all ties together and how your wisdom can speak to every single listener that we have is just, um, it's touching me. And I, I just want to say a huge thank you for spending the time today and sharing that with our with our listeners thank my you my pleasure my pleasure i appreciate it thanks well